16 and read through the remaining verses of this prophecy. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen, as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return unto thine own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possession. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken it. And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the plain the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim, and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. And Savior shall come upon Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Uh, tonight, as we conclude our study of Obadiah's prophecy, again, this is the shortest book of the Old Testament, the shortest of the minor prophets, the shortest of the entirety of the Old Testament. And tonight, as we conclude this portion, we've dealt, as you who've been with us are aware, we have dealt with basically all of these verses up to verse 21, which really we've already alluded and spoken much concerning that verse as well. But I wanted to go back to verse 15 because this is the second division of the entirety of the, of the prophecy. Verses 1 through 14 is the first division. 15 through 21 is the second division. And so I wanted to read the second division to you again. If you recall with me, obviously, in the first 14 verses, um, there, there are many things unique about this, this book and many things similar to other prophecies. Um, one that it is the shortest of all the old prophecies, uh, which is of significance. Uh, second, though, is that while many prophets spoke judgment, uh, naming multiple people, multiple heathen nations upon which judgment was to come, um, not just grouping it together as all the heathen, but many nations, many times named or what have you, we find um, that in this particular prophecy, Obadiah is truly focused on the judgment of God against Edom against Esau's offspring. It, it, he focuses and zeroes in on that. Now, he does include as well the day of the Lord, as we saw in verse 15, and also the judgment of all the heathen. But even in dealing with all the heathen, he still points out Edom. And I believe you see that again if you look back at verse, uh, look at verse 15 with me, when he says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. Now, that's all the heathen, all, the, all those who are in unbelief, all those who were not, of course, a part of not only... Uh, the people of Obadiah's day, but also all the heathen at the time of the day of the Lord, which is yet to come. And so he says, all the heathen, God's judgment upon them. All the, all the heathen, is, this is going to be the case. But remember specifically in the previous verses and previous division, verses 1 through 14, and, and we won't spend time to go there, but like, for instance, in, in verse 12, whenever he begins this whole, uh, this whole indictment against, the, against Edom concerning how they should not have done this, you should not have, you should not have, you should not have, and he continues to say that to Edom specifically, and then he mentions in verse 16, of course, how that, uh, or in verse 15, as they had done, so it would be done unto them. So their reward, of course, is a just reward in that God's judgment, um, they were right for God's judgment. Now, throughout our recent studies, um, we've seen many truths here throughout this, this prophecy, 
And tonight, as we conclude um, this prophecy, I, I'm going to, in some degree, or to some degree, summarize much of the study of this book of prophecy, which we've already covered, and as well emphasize certain portions of it as we work through this, uh, this conclusion of the book of Obadiah tonight. So throughout our recent studies of this prophecy, we've examined and, uh, the second and final division of the chapter, uh, which begins again in verse 15. And Obadiah prophesies specifically beginning this portion by stating that there's going to be the day of the Lord, in which not only Edom, but all the heathen would be destroyed. However, as we've discovered, and as I mentioned a moment ago, Edom is included among the heathen mentioned in verses 15 through 20, and I believe specifically even even pointed to um, as we consider the previous statements through verses 1 through 14. And so we see that uh, verses 15 and 16, again, God's judgment upon Edom, I think specifically mentioned, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen, as thou hast done it shall be done unto thee, thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. Now, we know that all the heathen will be destroyed, and we recognize that. But we also realize that Edom specifically, God multiple times throughout the prophecies, Jeremiah um, through, through Obadiah and, and others, Isaiah, he mentions concerning Edom, God's judgment upon them specifically, and how that God would wipe them out. Malachi, remember that he would... He would uh, lay their, 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 their heritage and land waste for the dragons, and, and he would destroy them, and they would rise up, but it would be said that these are the people to whom the Lord, has cur- the people the Lord had cursed forever. And so the curse of God was upon them continually and forever. Malachi chapter 1 makes that very clear. So we're told that Edom had drunk the wine of victory over God's people. Just a little review here, if you recall, verse 16. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain... Now, this reference to Edom having drunk upon the holy mountain, of course, regards, as we've mentioned, Edom celebrating the Babylonian victory over Israel in verses 12 through 14. Then Edom and all the wicked, number two, would drink in the wine of God's wrath, verse 16. goes on to say, so shall all the heathen drink continually. So as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, again, in reference to the previous verses where God says you shouldn't have done this and how they rejoiced in the calamity of Israel. How that they, when Jerusalem was invaded and ransacked, they were, it made them joyful and they were glad. And how they impeded the, the escape of many of those of Jerusalem, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They prevented them from escaping. And also how that they, uh, how that they, they were, were lending aid to the enemy and the Babylonian cap, concerning the Babylonian captivity. How they, they lended aid to them in the destruction of Jerusalem at that time. And so here we see that. As they had drunk upon the holy mountain, meaning, again, that they had rejoiced and they had taken uh, uh, great, great uh, joy and, and, and were glad, the scriptures says, they, they were, there was gladness due to the calamity of, of the people of Israel, of, of Jerusalem. He says, so shall all the heathen drink continually, but then he says that they shall drink, swallow down, and be as though they had never been. So in relation to the day of the Lord, which is in verse 15, he is saying, they will drink of my judgment, the, the, the cup of my judgment, they will drink and it will destroy them. They will be completely wiped, in, wiped out. So once again, we see the final and absolute judgment of God upon the wicked, including Edom mentioned here. And the, again, the Lord would not only devastate, but he would destroy the nations and the people to the degree that there was no remembrance of them as though they had never existed. Over the last couple of weeks, I've mentioned to you that one of the things that men look for today, and it's a, again, it's a catchphrase, if you will, or a, a hot topic button, if you will, that has been stated over the last several years, and that is, you know, this matter of legacy. Everybody wanting to leave their legacy and make sure that there's a legacy to leave behind. But the point is, God says, I'm going to wipe you out. Nothing's remembered of you. <laughs> so <laughs> there will be no legacy left. There's going to be nothing left. Um, and I believe that's important to recognize. The prophecy of Obadiah 
with all the detail of God's absolute judgment against Edom, reminds us of these truths. First, that while all men are deserving of God's judgment and wrath, we also know, uh, that being so, that God will righteously judge. And God will judge righteously. In other words, God's judgment of man is no more severe than man's offense against the Lord. Man gets what he truthfully deserves in, in the judgment and wrath of God. This means that no man will be judged more severely. All men are guilty before the Lord. However, at the same time, we are also reminded, as declared in verse 17, that the Lord does have a people, and he will deliver and restore these people to himself. Verse 17 goes on to say, But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Now this is interesting, isn't it? God makes some declarations here that we need to really examine and consider. He doesn't say, I'm going I'm to strive to make a holy people, or I'm going to really encourage them to be holy. No, he says, there will be deliverance. Notice something, first of all, the holiness that he declares is not hinged or dependent upon the people of which he is speaking. It's dependent upon his deliverance of that people. God will deliver, and God declares that there will be holiness present, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Isaiah expounded upon God's restorative work. In Isaiah 4, 2 through 4, we read, In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. Interesting here that Isaiah mentions burning as well when we find in the verses that we read tonight and we looked at um, last week. Notice verse 18. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. So he's saying here, and he, he explains what that means, and they shall kindle in them, meaning that the house of Jacob and Joseph will kindle in the house of Esau. And we find in Isaiah's prophecy, he as well mentions this, this point of the spirit of burning and the purging of uh, uh, the washing of the filth of the daughters of Zion and, and purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment, which he is mentioning in the day of the Lord here, of course, as well. Verse 15 of, of Obadiah. And then also by the spirit of burning. And here you find this consuming fire, if you will, that's consuming the wicked in that respect. Now, as we've previously discovered from the conclusion of Obadiah's prophecy and throughout Scripture, we see God's judgment in Scripture. It is always contrasted, contrasted by point. Because you find God's judgment to be severe and harsh, and, and it will be absolute, and we know that. In other words, it will be final and total. But yet, any time the judgment of God is present, you find as well the grace of God contrasted against that judgment. And, and there's, there's a beautiful truth to this. Um, I, I've shared with you before, and I want to go there again because it's so in, it, this is such an impressive passage to expound upon this truth and to demonstrate this truth. In Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 7, let me read these to you. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. 
The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. That's fairly severe judgment. (laughs) He's saying the very earth quakes before his presence. And that all men, he will not acquit the wicked at all. In other words, the wicked will perish, his wrath will pour out upon them. But then the very next verse, here you find that contrast, verse 7. The Lord is good. (laughs) A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knoweth them that trust in him. What a contrast. Here you have the very God upon which the mountains and and the, the ground shakes before him. He says he will not acquit the wicked at all. They will be absolutely, utterly destroyed. But then for those who trust him, the Lord is good. And by the way, you know what the word good is, don't you? It's that he's gracious. The Lord is good, gracious, merciful. So just as all men deserve God's wrath, in contrast, there are none who deserve his grace and mercy. Nonetheless, the Lord always displays the beauty of his grace against the fierceness of his wrath. I believe we find this most clearly demonstrated in the New Testament within Paul's letter to the believers in Rome. The majority of the first three chapters of the book of Romans addresses the depravity and hopelessness of man as men are left to themselves. And we find that Romans chapter 1 specifically and chapter 2 explain to us how that men will inevitably self-destruct if God does not divinely intervene. I've often referred to that passage of Romans chapter 1, the latter part of the chapter, as the passive judgment of God. Now, God is not passive. That's not what I'm saying. There's no passivity with God. But the point is this. God does not have to rain brimstone down from heaven to destroy the wicked. God can't just say, here's the result of sin. The wages of sin is death. Is it not? And men will ultimately be destroyed physically, and without God intervening, they will spiritually perish and so the passive judgment of God, I say it from this perspective or with this, in this respect, that is that God is saying, okay, I'm going to allow them to continue unto utter condemnation without divinely intervening. It's still his active judgment in that he's declared judgment upon sin. So it's still God's judgment, but rather than him just utterly destroying at one moment, he allows men to continue. Peter speaks of this as well as we've observed even in our study of Obadiah, where Peter says that, the Lord knows how to reserve the wicked under the day of judgment. Remember that? But he also said, but he's not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so he can reserve the wicked unto judgment. He knows how to allow them to continue. And, and again, we must always be reminded of this truth. We must never forget that, again, God is good record. And the rejection and unbelief in the hearts of all men, the wickedness that is within In fact, Jeremiah spoke to this in chapter 17. Remember when he says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know their own heart? Our own hearts deceive ourselves. We are deceived by our own hearts. He says, but I, the Lord, search the hearts and try the reins. He goes, I know the heart. I know what's within man. That's why he can declare the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked because he knows what's in the heart of man. So God is able to reserve even the wicked unto the day of judgment that is inevitably going to come. And God will not acquit the wicked at all. So there's absolute judgment. But I also say to you, 
that in the life of those who trusted Christ, in our lives, for those who are believers in Jesus Christ, let's be mindful of this truth as well, that there is one thing declared in Scripture that is greater than our sin. Again, this contrast. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And so the one thing that's greater than my sin is the grace of God in my life. And so a contrast to the judgment of God and the wrath of God is the grace of God. Romans chapter 3, 10 through 18, we see this this truth. We'll read that in just a moment. But before we do, let me mention a few things concerning this. How that, again, apart from God's divine intervention, we'll see that man will self-destruct. Paul explains in Romans that the problem of sin, in the first three chapters, he explains that the problem of sin extends beyond geographical, educational, generational, and quote-unquote racial and financial barriers. The problem of sin affects every human being, and for that matter, even the physical world in which we live, because the world itself is under the curse of sin. Paul clearly stated in Romans 3.9 concerning both Jew and Gentile that all are under sin. So it's an absolute universal problem for all of men. Romans 3.10-18 we read, as it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Yet midway in chapter 3 and following, Paul then magnifies God's grace through the justification which God has provided in our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans three nineteen through 22. Now we know that what, thi- what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Remember he said all are under sin? He just said that just moments ago. And now he's saying that the righteousness of God is which is by faith of Jesus Christ, is upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Just as all are under sin, so all of those who are in Christ, there's no difference between them, Jew nor Gentile, is the point Paul is making. God would use Jacob and Joseph. He goes on to say here in, of course, Obadiah's prophecy, that God would use Jacob and Joseph in the midst of God's judgment against uh, Edom. We see God's goodness in his deliverance of Israel And we also see that he used Jacob and Joseph to consume the goods of the house of Esau. So just as Esau had mocked the chastisement God used to correct his people and to judge them, in like manner, Esau would be left desolate while God's people would be restored and blessed by God. Look at verses 17 and 18 of Obadiah again. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them, and they shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken it. Last week, if you recall, we considered Obadiah's explanation of how God would restore his people. Verses 19 and 20 tell us, And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the plain the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim, and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath. 
and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Shepherd, and shall possess the cities of the south. So we are, we're once again reminded that God is going to be faithful to his purpose and plan, which includes the judgment of the wicked. It includes the, the absolute uh, destruction of the wicked, as Scripture so clearly states it. He will be faithful to himself. God will be faithful to himself as he reveals his perfect plan in time. While the wicked will be judged, and while men continue to raise up their kingdom seeking for power, here's what we're reminded of. And again, I love how this prophecy concludes. Because verse 21 is just a phenomenal statement when he says, And Savior shall come upon Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And what a phenomenal statement. What a phenomenal conclusion to this prophecy. Esau has done everything, or Edom has done everything it could to raise itself up. Malachi speaks to that. Again, remember Malachi 1, that they would attempt to raise themselves up. They would attempt to build. In fact, let's turn there again for just a moment. Turn to Malachi just so we can read this again and see where this is actually uh, foretold in Malachi's prophecy. Malachi chapter 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. Here's what he's saying. And and now look at verse 5, though. This again shows the wrath of God and the grace of God. And your eyes shall see and ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. Here's what you find. God says that Edom would attempt to build up. They're going to say, oh, we'll raise ourselves back up. We'll build up. But these are the people whom the Lord says they are wicked. And the word indignation there means cursed. That God has cursed them forever. So judgment is theirs. They are ripe for judgment and they will be judged. And that's what's being stated here. But then in verse 21 of Obadiah, after all of this judgment's pronounced and then deliverance near the end and God blessing and restoring Israel, restoring his people once again, and then it says, Savior shall come upon Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Revelation eleven fifteen through 17, we read. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. Again, listen. The world has been filled throughout history with men attempting and successfully raising up kingdoms unto themselves. Nations rising and nations falling. Kingdoms being built and kingdoms being destroyed. But let's be reminded of this one truth. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. There is one kingdom that will be left standing. And that is the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. And that's it. All the enemies of our God and all the enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ will be his footstool. Every knee will bow. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, Jesus, and given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. There is one kingdom that matters. There is one kingdom that will last. And that kingdom is the kingdom of God. And by the way, so what then is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of heaven? That is the spiritual kingdom in which God reigns within the hearts of men right now. And those in whom he reigns, he will reign for all eternity. And we will be with him and he will be through us or in us forever, with us forever. And so the reality of the fact of the matter is, Christ ushered in the kingdom of his death and resurrection as he sent his spirit to dwell within us. Desires to see that kingdom fully, ultimately realized. And in time it will be. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And the only kingdom left standing is the kingdom of our God. Again, a phenomenal conclusion to prophecy of such destruction and despair for a specific people, uh, Edom, and also the people of the world, all the heathen, that is. But yet also you find, again, the promise of God's faithfulness to restore, redeem, to deliver, to bless, and to reign. All this is all in God's purpose and plan. I remember the other day, uh, Miss Janice said something to us in the uh, theology class a few weeks back, she, someone had said this to her uh, that made the statement that, you know, while pe- many people say the, the world is just uh, falling to pieces, but yet, in reality, everything is just falling into place. And that's really the truth of it. Everything is just falling into place. And it will be revealed in time. Again, one of the comforts I've had through years as I read Philippians 2, 9 through 11 is simply this. I know that we live in a day, and it's been like this since the time of sin in the Garden of Eden, but we live in a day in which it seems as though sin just abounds. It seems as though wickedness just prevails. It does seem that way. As you look around, you see the hatred that the ungodly have for the Lord and for His church and for His truth. And it seems to just continually grow within our context of society, if you will. And so you begin to see that and you're thinking, wow, you know, could it get worse? Of course it can. Has it been worse? Of course it has. But yet you see how bad it is getting comparative to what we've known and we think about how horrible it is. But there is one great comfort in all of this. First of all, we know that those who know Christ know we are born again. We know we're not citizens of this world, but we are citizens of another country, a heavenly, a heavenly citizen. Second, we know that all this is under God's control and that nothing is happening that is not apart from him allowing and permitting it to be in the fulfillment of his purpose and plan. And third, we know this, that God is not going to acquit the wicked at all, and that every single person, again, there will be no one who perishes in eternity that will not know why they are under the judgment and wrath of God. There's not going to be anyone ignorant to why they are perishing. Remember what the scripture says, every knee will bow. That's not some, that's all. Every tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. So every person will consciously understand and know why they are under the wrath and judgment of God. Now that doesn't bring us joy. Don't misunderstand me by any means. In fact, that should give us a passion for the gospel and declaring the gospel to men who are hopeless without the gospel. But at the same time, I will say this. It's a great comfort to be understand and to realize with absolute certainty that nothing falls through the cracks 
but that God's plan will perfectly be fulfilled. And the kingdom belongs to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank